Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. <laughs> the one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13 based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source, just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. <laughs> do I hear, is there some sort of like a, uh, do you have some sort of a uh, like prayer crier in the background? <laughs> Uh, why do you ask? <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, how you been this week? You been good? I've been good. It's yeah. been, uh, you know, it's been a busy week. I feel like the time just zipped by. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. As do I. You know, it's just, this is one of the, I'm in this, in the middle of this, this cycle where it's like every morning I, I wake up, I'm like, oh my God, I totally dread the day because it, there's just... It, it's not finally enough scheduled. Like every minute of the day should be precisely productive. Right. Uh, and uh, so looking forward to it. You know, we're, we're road tripping next week. We've got a little spring break. We're going to uh, to our fair home, Colorado. Nice. Do you watch Road Trip before you take a road trip just to kind of gear yourself up? I don't. We I actually prefer to watch, uh, you know, anything that like, you know, kidnapping movies, The Vanishing you should watch the van. There you go. <laughs> Get it in there. Right? <laughs> oh, redemption. We are the next reel, everybody. Thanks for joining us and uh, uh, listening to our fair show. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. Hey! <laughs> Wow. <laughs> oh wow. And uh you can find out more about the <laughs> you can find out more about the show at thenextreel.com. Uh you can check out the blog, check out our uh, uh click the links to jump over to our our top 100 list over at Flickchart. You can join the conversation on the various social channels. Uh and we would love to uh we'd love to hear you jump in and and chat with us about uh your favorite movies and ours. And now uh for our weekly report. I know Everyone else looks forward to this as much as I do on how Andy did versus the people. Yeah, it wasn't a good week for Andy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but okay, so I, you know, I did a challenge for myself. I'm like, I'm going to take a, a huge mega blockbuster and see if I can find just some of the most obscure images from it possible or obscure faces or whatever I could find that I could potentially use on Instagram to try to sell it. But, but and, mega blockbuster, we're talking... Big leagues here, right? We're talking big leagues. Yeah, the movie this week was Iron Man, and so I, you know, I went through it, and you know, it's it's nigh impossible to find shots that aren't obvious. I mean, they're really just way too many obvious shots. Yeah. So, but I mean, there's every now and then there's something that pops up, and so I put a picture up, um, and first day, and <laughs> right away, it was clear to people that I had picked a blockbuster, and I find it so interesting that. People can tell just based on the kind of the, the quality of the image. Because right away, and it's, it's a woman military person speaking into a microphone. 
and Man of Steel, Battleship, Transformers. Like, those all came up. It's like, wow, people are really onto me with this blockbuster <laughs> thing. They really sensed it in the quality of the image. And then Fiery Batman, he, he ended up, I mean, he just kind of went, which is, it was a little bit of widespread, but I gave it to him because he said Iron Man 1, 2, or 3. Okay, so he didn't specifically <laughs> single it out. But yes, he did get it right. It was Iron Man. So on congratulations, the, Fiery on Batman. On the first image. I know. You know, that it goes to goes to show how devoted some people are to some of these mega blockbusters that they can just tell <laughs> from some background player that uh, they know exactly what movie it is. That's awesome. <laughs> So now, what's your your strat? You just you just you post your original images that you had planned, or do you do you change okay. it up and post? I I take a whole bunch of images, yeah. and some are more obvious, and some are less obvious. And so I'll post some of the less obvious, but I'll then I'll post some of the more obvious ones too, because they they already figured it out. So yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's all part of the fun. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. So congratulations, Fiery Batman! You are entered to win the Pony Prize. <laughs> And trailers. I think that I should just go first because mine is pretty brazen. Well, <laughs> I look forward to to hearing how you're going to do this while not uh, taking us into the realm of an explicit tag. <laughs> right. It's, you know, uh, it, it, this is just one of those films that it, it really is just aimed for a specific audience. That Do you think? <laughs> you, like, what is that audience? My mother? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know your, your, your mother, mother well enough. Your maybe. mother. <laughs> but definitely my mother. <laughs> oh, no, mother, I'm sorry. I... <laughs> take it back. Yeah, I take it back. Um, no, the movie is called Bad Johnson. And it is just a, it looks to be, it starts off looking just like a, a raunchy sex comedy. Um, and <laughs> it continues as kind of a raunchy sex comedy, but not in any way that you would expect it to be. It's basically this womanizer who's very charismatic and very handsome and, uh, you know, is going around sleeping with every woman he sees and ruining relationships left and right. Um, he wakes up one morning to find that his male genitalia has actually disappeared and he freaks out. And then, then he freaks out even more because he realizes that, that his penis has actually turned into a human <laughs> with, with and, a beard, with a great big bushy beard and is now, uh, walking and talking and basically living the high life. Uh, not attached to him anymore. <laughs> and, and so now he has to deal with taking care of his little buddy and <laughs> try to, uh, I don't know, just try to rein him in a little bit and get control of him. And I, I, I'm assuming it's going to be kind of learning how to, you know, treat women right and all that sort of stuff over the course of the film. But the the real sell on this film is just the fact that, you know, his penis takes human form and, now he has to deal with it. Well, it, it, what what's what I love about it is that from the looks of it, it looks like his his penis becomes the enemy. Right, his penis is the antagonist. Which <laughs> becomes I the guess, antagonist you know. <laughs> in the film, which which yeah, I, I think it's, is it's taking exter yeah, it's externalizing his, his sexual libido. Right, and that 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 metaphor is just it looks really brilliantly executed in what should be a nice raunchy comedy. Yeah, it definitely will be a raunchy comedy. <laughs> it's Not... just a concept you can't, you just can't uh, 
you know, you, you can't not watch this. You can't not appreciate what they've what they've done here. What yeah, was that? I mean... What was that? It's it's <laughs> it sort of has this vibe of uh, well, and we should say it is this. We picked this trailer as an homage to. Uh, bad Milo. Bad which... Milo, <laughs> right? But it also just, seems like yeah. a cross between Bad Milo and what was uh, what was that with um, Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, Bridget Fonda, single white female, single white female, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was an interesting comparison, <laughs> right? It's got a little bit of that to it. <laughs> anyway, I I think it's gonna be uh, I think it's gonna be one to one to catch on a a very late showing. Late showing, uh, make sure you're drinking while you're watching it. Probably one of those sorts (laughs) of movies. (laughs) Yeah, it looks pretty wacky. But, uh, you know, in the spirit of just, uh, you know, sex comedies, I think it should be pretty fun. And that opens May 2nd. May 2nd. All right, my trailer is... um, Well, okay, so you know, last time you did... uh, When you did Bad Milo, I did The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Mm. Which was, you know, trying to, to regain some sense of class. That's right. This uh, <laughs> I'm going to try and do the same thing this week with the uh, 2013 British American drama thil- thriller Lock. Uh, comes from Stephen Knight, starring Tom Hardy. Um, and I'm telling you, when I see Tom Hardy on screen right now, I he really is becoming one of my favorite actors. Um, this uh, this film. Um, it starts out, the trailer starts out, and he's in the car, and he's talking to what we presume to be his wife, uh, and uh, he says, hey, I've got to tell you something, I'm not coming home. Yeah. And it, then it's just a sequence of, of phone calls that get increasingly intense uh, as he is, um, uh, you know, having these conversations on his phone with these people as he's letting go of his life for some reason to, quote, take care of something. Uh, and we don't know what that thing is, but it, it looks like it's um, it's very intense. It does look very intense. And Stephen Knight, we've talked about on the show before. Yes. I mean, he, he does some great stuff. And, and writing, directing this, I, I've got to say, I'm I'm quite excited to see it. Uh, you know, knowing his uh, chronology of films that he's either um, written or directed, I, uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to this. Yeah, I think so, too. I, you know, from Dirty Pretty Things to Closed Circuit, um, you know, I think he has... Uh, I, I think he's done some some really interesting things, and uh, in terms of the this sort of thriller um, vibe, so I'm I'm looking forward to it. And it, you know, I am very curious how he's going to do because uh, you know, Buried was a great example of a one man in one situation sort of film that I think carried itself really well. You don't feel like you uh, are bored watching a man buried in a box right. for the l- run of a film. This is the same sort of thing where we're watching Tom Hardy in his car driving for the entire film. At least that's how they kind of pitch it. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm really curious how uh, Stephen Wright handles that as far as keeping the energy up cinematically while we basically watch Tom Hardy on the phone with all these different people in his life. And, and we it, it's a thriller. It's, it's pretty interesting and very compelling. Yeah, I think so too. I think it looks really great. And... I um all of a sudden I can't tell you when it opens. Do you have that? It's like it's coming very it's soon. When April, is it? April twenty fifth. April twenty fifth. I lost yeah. my tab here. April twenty yeah. fifth. Um so coming right up. Uh buy your tickets now. <laughs> yeah, looking forward to that one. Very much. All right. Uh, I think it's time. Let's let's swing for the outfield. <laughs> <laughs> I'd lead you all in a little prayer. Dear Lord, may our feet be swift, may our bats be mighty, 
May our balls be plentiful. And Lord, I just like to thank you for that waitress in South Bend. You know who she is. She kept calling your name. This summer, Tom Hanks is managing the impossible. The Rockford Peaches. missing the cutoff man. Now, that, that, that's something that I would like you to work on before next season. Columbia Pictures would like to take you out to the ball game for an all-star comedy. They'll pay you $75 a week. We only make 30 at the dairy. Well, then, this would be more, wouldn't it? The manager, Tom Hanks. Are you crying? There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. The catcher, Gina Davis. Well, you see, we slip in the back seat. You make a man out of me. We'll say I smack you around for a while. Can't we do both? The pitcher, Lori Petty. I made it! I'm a peach! A Rockford peach! The scout, John Lovitz. Are you coming? See how it works is. The train moves, not the station. And batting cleanup, Madonna. What if my uniform bursts open and, oops, my bosoms come flying out? You think there are men in this country who ain't seen your bosoms? A league of their own. All right. God knows we have a game. It's not like any of this helps, believe me. Directed by Penny Marshall. A league of their own. Yes, oh, indeed. Oh, Andy. <laughs> Uh-oh. No, I. You know what? It, this is really funny. I, um, the A League of Their Own, nineteen ninety two. This is, uh, this is a story of the real life uh, AAGPBL, <laughs> the right. All American Girls Professional Baseball League. Uh, it is directed by Penny Marshall. Stars, of course, uh, Tom Hanks, uh, Gina Davis, Rosie O'Donnell, and Madonna. And Lori Petty. And Lori Petty. Yep. John Lovitz. Uh, yeah. Well, Strapper, there is this. This Gary is a, a significant <laughs> cast uh, in terms it of is. just small roles. Even the the two guys who follow around uh, Rosie O'Donnell, uh, those are guys who have shown up in a whole bunch of other places. They're just random audience, uh, like stadium warmers. Uh, th- right, so this right. is this is one of those films that has a lot of really familiar faces to it. Um, it it's it's a film that I think, uh, uh, well, it obviously has its own resonance. And in 2012, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry, the Library of yeah. Congress. It is, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. And yet, my memory of the film was, yeah, it was pretty cute. <laughs> uh, of course, it's been a long time since I've seen it, so I'm curious for you how how did it hold up? You know, that's a great question. This is a movie that um, I've kind of always loved ever since it came out. Um, you know, being the Tom Hanks fan that I am, I just I absolutely adored the film. It's I mean, it's a cute film. I, I love the story. I think it was a. Uh, uh, I, I don't think at the time when it came out, I don't think I appreciated the historical context of the film as much. I just kind of more enjoyed the story. And I think I'm shifting a little bit. I think 
a, a lot of the elements in the script now I find a little kind of cute, uh, kind of cutesy, uh, very basic screenwriting. Um, it still works. It's still effective. And in context of it being a, uh, a fun comedy to put on, I still find that it works, but, um, but I just find it really obvious now when I watch it, I'm like, wow, that's just straight out of the book, straight out of the playbook as far as uh, how to put your screenplay together. But, um, but I'm, I'm enjoying more now. I think the, uh, just now I'm, the historical context of the film and just the this this getting this story out there i think is a, a great thing for um for people for sports fans uh for for women I, I think it's a great film to get out there just to to keep alive the idea that look at what we you know we did back in the 40s this uh, women's baseball league that i think was very inspiring for a lot of people and even in the time of 1992 when this came out there weren't a lot of women's sports uh, out there at the time and i think tennis and golf may have been the only two and uh, this film really kind of inspired a lot of women and, and it, it created a lot more push for getting more women's sports out there and so i i think in the context of the historic uh nature of the film i find that a lot more interesting and compelling now than the film itself as much as i you know on a cursory level watching the film i definitely enjoy it but definitely looking at it critically now it's just uh it's a little weaker i i i think i'm with you on that although i did enjoy the film more than i thought i would i actually it surprised me uh going into the film the number of times i just sort of chuckled i i uh you know there are some things structurally i think and and you know the performances some of the performances i found like are kind of tough to watch and and again i i know i'm on the record as kind of having trouble with uh films made in this era that look so much like they were made in this era uh, uh -huh. although 92 was getting a little bit late for my trouble with the 80s uh era films um the uh i really didn't like the opening and the close i thought they were ridiculous and this idea of dubbing um uh gina davis's voice on the older actress was tough to to watch yeah um and, and sort of like haunting in a really bad sort of par paranormal activity way like that was not it was not good it was not good uh but once we got into the baseball of it once we got into the story of it and and open with sort of this John Lovitz uh you know doing his his scouting routine uh I found myself really quite charmed by the film and and I usually am not one to to uh go for Gina Davis movies I found she was um she was charming and and um you know I I liked her performance overall and uh, it was fun to watch Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna, but as you say, uh, this is man, this is right out of the book. Yeah, and uh, it, you know, even apart from the fact that I'd seen it, I really have seen it. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and so now we watched it as our family movie night last night, um, and so you know, my kids watched it too, and they of course hadn't seen it, and. What I found most interesting was a number of times my daughter at 11 years old said, wow, that is super dumb. Uh, talking, <laughs> talking not about the film, but about things like, really, with the skirts? 
they oh. made them wear skirts like the stuff that that i found she uh was really resonating with this idea of um wow we've come a long way you know she didn't yeah. say it as much but the things that she really found as dumb were the things that she just couldn't she couldn't wrap her head around why um why they would do this why does a team of grown women need a chaperone right. you know those kinds of things like that's that's something that that i thought was was really um, you know, I think when you talk about the lessons we learned from what we've been through, um, I think watching this film now, uh, you know, 20 plus years later, actually, is it, it's it's worth watching. It's a film that is worth watching. It is, uh, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily significant, but it is resonant. Well, and it's significant in the sense that this is a story that more people should be aware of. I mean, I, I don't think I knew that there was ever an All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. A lot of the people involved in this film had no idea that there were ever professional women baseball players. Right. And when they found out, they're like, I can't believe that nobody talks about this. We absolutely need to get this story out there. Yes. And so in that context, I think it's an incredibly important film. And it is kind of surprising that uh, this baseball league had essentially disappeared for as long as it did. I mean, it was, uh, it was you know, for the context of it, you know, they created it because all of the, the men were going off to war in the early 40s. And so they needed uh, a, something to keep, you know, people excited about baseball and keep it the spirit of it going. And so they created the baseball league with women in order to keep people going to the stadiums and everything. So it lasted in, from 43 to 54. They managed to, it was so popular, they kept it going after the men retor- returned home. Um, and they were able to kind of keep going into the 50s. Um, but then it kind of disappeared, and um, you know, it just—I guess—people just kind of forgot about it. So it is really nice to see that uh, that they did end up making a film about it. I think so too. I think in that context, the the sequences between David Strathairn and Gary Marshall, I think, were the most uh, important sequences in the film to me. You know, uh, watching David Strathairn's, Strathairn's character, who is has worked tirelessly uh, to create a. Uh, and he plays uh, Ira Lowenstein. He was the general manager of the um, of, the, of the whole league. The, the whole league, right? And he has worked tirelessly to, as he says, create a product when there was no product, right? Mm-hmm. And and at the at the point in the film when uh, Gary Marshall comes back and says, you know, it's too bad we aren't going to need these girls anymore. Now that there is this, you know, now that there's this huge turnout for women's uh, uh, baseball, he, you know. Uh, Strathairn's character says, you you know, I, I created something out of nothing and we can't just let it go. Like there is, there's room for this. We have to do this. Are we really, are you seriously suggesting that when the men come back from the war, we're going to tell these women to go back to the kitchens? Yeah. And, and I thought that was, I mean, in terms of weighty moments, um, those are, those are really powerful sequences. And in other words, it, it comes in an otherwise, pretty lightweight attribution to the kind of sincerity of the historical events. Right? It, it, it really is lightweight. And that's something that struck me more this time was the fact that the whole thing was fictionalized except for, you know, the actual creation of the team. I mean, all of the kind of context of the, the history was kept in, but the whole, you know, the, the battle between two sisters, uh, you just, uh, all of that stuff. I mean, they, they based some of the characters off of some of the real players and, and Jimmy Dugan, obviously, um, but in a, in a large part, it was very, uh, it was very fictional. 
which it struck me more this time. It's like, I wonder why they opted to just create a kind of a, a lightweight comedic story rather than just tell an actual historical story of it. Well, can you tell, I mean, you've, you have watched, I know more of the behind the scenes stuff than I have, right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how the uh, how the cast came together and how the film just sort of came together? Because my my hunch was that they managed to secure some otherwise predominantly comic actors, uh, and and that sets the tone of the film. But I well, may be making that up. Well, and I think all of that really starts from uh, bringing on the director. I mean, this you know Penny Marshall coming on board to direct this. I, I think her history in the industry is much more of kind of that lightweight, popular entertainment uh, comedy sort of persona rather than somebody who's doing stuff more seriously. Sure. I mean, she did come right off of Awakenings, I believe, before exactly, she did this. Right. So she had kind of stepped into stuff that was a little more serious. But I mean, she really does come from that comedic background. And um, but but she's somebody who's always been interested in sports. And when she heard about this, she's like, I, this is a story, like I said, you know, this is a story that we have to get out there. She actually started trying to find female screenwriters to write this script. And she pushed and pushed and none of them were interested. They're all like, oh, no, I, I, that's not a story I want to tell. And I don't know why. So she ended up going to uh, uh, Babalu Mandel and Lil Gantz, who had, she had worked with back on the, uh, the Laverne and Shirley days. And, you know, we've already talked about them. They were the writer, Oscar-nominated writers of Splash. Right. <laughs> right. And uh, they are definitely Hollywood um, comedy writers. They, they definitely have that uh, type of writing that they do. And it's, um, I think it's very um, telling that they were behind the screenplay. I mean, yes, they did the research in the baseball um, in the baseball world, in the historical context of the story. But the fact that they were the ones who were brought on to write the script, I think really tells the vibe that, that Penny Marshall was looking for with the film in order to make it something that uh, maybe is something that she could kind of sell to, to get the funding and everything. And, uh, you know, even in that context, I mean, she still had to fight with the producers. You know how, I mean, with uh, with uh, the studio. And, you know, we've talked about studio and their decisions and everything. They were arguing with her quite a bit about this story, about things like, well, why doesn't Gina Davis end up with Tom Hanks at the end? That's just, she has to end up with Tom Hanks. That's how the movie should end. And she's like, this is the 40s. A woman who's happily married is not going to leave her husband just because this guy comes along. It just doesn't make sense in the context of the times. And so she was fighting with them over things like that. And uh, a lot of the things that, the decisions that they wanted made in the film, it, you know, I don't know, hearing all of that, it struck me. We kind of had this conversation back when we were talking about 42 and how it was that was a film that the studios were nervous to make because, you know, how many people are going to come watch a film about black baseball players? And I think this was one where the studio um, was talking to her about how many people are going to come watch a film about women baseball players. And so I think that because of that, they ended up adopting this kind of fun, kind of lightweight story that wasn't as maybe uh, it wasn't based on the history of the actual event, but it was going to be a fun film that would draw the crowds in. And, well, and interestingly, give Tom Hanks top billing in a film that is really a Gina Davis film. Well, right, exactly. Then, and sh and yes, Gina had you know her own little uh, gold man and everything, so she was definitely uh, somebody that that has some clout. But 
Tom Hanks had been pretty big and the fact that then they were able to get him on board and he's a huge baseball fan anyway. So Tom right, Hanks right. was perfect for the part to come on board. And, you know, he talks about it. He's just like, okay, so I got to spend a summer um, in a baseball uniform sitting around with a whole bunch of women who were playing baseball and I got to go out on the field and kind of play whenever I wanted to. It was like a dream come true job for him, you know, like right. this Apollo 13, right. Saving Private Ryan. You know, he's got these kind of roles that he always kind of, you know, wanted to be. And here he is getting to do all of them. Guy whose bucket list is significantly checked off. Right. He, he doesn't have much left on that right. bucket list. And and so, yeah, he, he was perfect for the part and he was excited to be a part of the film. And I think, you know, he already had worked with Penny Marshall on Big, so he was very comfortable working with her. He had already uh, worked with uh, Lowell and Babalu on Splash, so he was very comfortable um, with them as the writers. And it, he knew it was going to be kind of this kind of fun comedy story. And so I think he was just very comfortable in it. And I, I don't think that the top billing hurt. Uh, especially drawing in the male audience who may have been otherwise oh a movie about women's baseball players i don't know yeah exactly so and and to be fair i mean i you know i say that sort of out of the side of my mouth uh, tom hanks tom billing but the truth is there are some fantastic bits of tom hanks in this film and uh, quite memorable bits and uh um, you know, I think the, you know, there's no crying in baseball sequence gets quoted a lot. But to me, the the better bit is the the kind of punchline to that joke when, uh, you know, later in the film, you know, he's been accosting this uh, one of the players for um, you know, <laughs> not throwing the ball in the right place. And, and so he's, she starts crying. There's no crying in baseball. And he does this whole little monologue about that. And he asks the umpires, they're crying in baseball. It just goes on and on. Well, later, he she does the same thing. And he has a silent uh, a barrage of rage in her direction, but causes her not to start crying. And his, uh, he, he's just, you get a, a sort of refreshing reminder of just how physical an actor Tom Hanks is. Mm-hmm. Especially in the context of all of these films coming out of Booze and Buddies that got progressively more and more serious. Right. Uh, and, and he, uh, you know, in this, period of his career he was he was you know it's very much sort of the Jim Carrey syndrome you know um, when you have a guy who is so immensely talented at being a physical comedian um, you know making that transition to do things that are more serious in this case Apollo 13 uh, in in Carrey's case you know Eternal Sunshine um, you're trying to hide something that is such a, a wonderful strength and i think in this film when you see him do this or the the incredible urination scene in the locker room um which i think uh, apart from being you know kind of cutesy clumsy is also culturally resonant in its own way um you know i think uh i, I think it reminds us what a talent uh tom hanks is yeah yeah and plus uh, you know i think he had been uh, uh gotten a lot of accolades for for Big, which he did back in 88 with Penny right. Marshall. I mean, he got nominated for an Oscar for it, for Pete's sake. And um, and then he kind of hit a, a string of, uh, you know, just a, a tough spell. And as much as uh, I might love some of the movies in that tough spell, uh, I think a lot of people didn't. You know, I mean, after he did Big, he was in Punchline, The Burbs, Turner and Hooch, Joe vs. the Volcano, which we've talked about on the show, The Bonfire of the Vanities, Radio Flyer. Not a lot of stuff that was necessarily pushing him in the right direction, or at least the direction he wanted to be going in, especially coming off of an Oscar-nominated performance. And so I think he was kind of, in a way, it almost looks like he was kind of going back to a comfortable spot with Penny Marshall, you know, where he could 
play kind of a character that, uh, okay, he wasn't the lead of the film necessarily, but it was a, a spot where he could kind of get himself back on track. Because then right after that, he goes into Sleepless in, Se- Sleepless in Seattle, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump. And so I think that really kind of got him back in the direction he was going. Because if he kept going the direction of Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, you know, he really could have ended up in probably a spot where he's not on the show too often. <laughs> We're not talking about... <laughs> oh. Bonfire of the Vanities... My goodness. It's an interesting experience. Uh, Brian De Palma, yeah, back to our Brian De Palma conversation. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he tries and tries, and sometimes he <laughs> succeeds, and sometimes he doesn't succeed. Brian De Palma, more spaghetti. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> think about it for just a little oh, bit oh god uh i you know i'm with you i think uh I, I think this is it's interesting and i think it's a it almost is unfortunate kind of the 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 place these people were in this career and that is i guess the you know in spite of the wonderful things i think of these bits and of tom hanks performance in this film um the the one thing i could not let go of in this viewing is um he he it seemed like he was putting on airs a bit to be as old and surly as he was he just didn't seem quite quite the type um to to pull off um you know the surly manager um uh you know uh, with with quite enough credibility for me well and that's you know a, a good point and they had originally written the role to be an older manager yeah and when they when Lowell and Babalu learned that it was going to be Tom um, they instantly kind of reworked it for him. And Tom himself was really concerned. He's like, well, I am a little young to play a manager of a team, but they had that whole story about how Jimmy Dugan had been, uh, you know, injured. And because of that, um, he essentially, his baseball career was over. And so he was a very young manager. Yeah. A young and so, drunk. yeah. And so it, it works in context of the story, but yeah, so there are, there are a few moments where it seems like he's, not quite there in that in that uh he's really pushing to be that you know the gruff manager that that was that that was certainly my sense um yeah. you know funny fun to watch uh but um uh, Gina Davis uh, you know yeah oh talking about the um uh, going back to a question you asked earlier the casting of this film all of these women in order to even get considered for a role from Gina Davis all the way down through Madonna um, through all of the you know the supporting uh, baseball players in the story, um, Penny Marshall wouldn't even consider them for the role until they had gone through a baseball uh, a baseball training day, and the coach was able to tell them this person's trainable, and if they were or or not, and if they were trainable, then Penny would audition them. Because she wasn't going to waste her time auditioning yeah. somebody who... We've talked about this on the show. Baseball is a sport where you can't fake it. You have to know how to play the game. You have right. to look like you're doing it correctly when you're filming a baseball movie. You can't just you know fake a pitch. It really has to look like an actual pitch. So all of these, um, all of these actresses, they, they came out of baseball camp and, and Penny Marshall then auditioned them. So Gina Davis is great in the film. And I, you know, I know that she's not one of your favorites. Um, she's definitely one for me that's in uh, at least one of my guilty pleasures. Oh, oh. Uh-huh. Oh. What? What's that? What did I just <laughs> hint at there? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do have, um, I don't it's, know. It's not the pirate one, is it? It's not the pirate one. I've actually never <laughs> seen that one. Okay. So. All right. Yeah. But uh, no, there's something else. All right. I'm you may continue. Say, not going to say. 
Stuart Little uh, Three, Call of the Wild. Ah, uh, man. <laughs> All right, keep going. <laughs> uh, I I like Gina Davis. I've always liked Gina Davis. There's something about her I think that that I find compelling. Um, I, I don't think that she works in all of the films that she's been in, but, uh, but I do like her a lot in this film. I think that, um, yeah, I, I don't know. This was just one of those movies that I, I just really enjoyed. Okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say this out loud and it's a little bit of an aside. I think it's quite possible that both of our guilty pleasures, uh, have a, a major crossover actor. That's what I'm saying. A major crossover uh-huh. actor. You just let that, let that sink in. Okay, uh, so Gina Davis, yeah, um, yeah, she she works in this film for you. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, 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 you you totally got me sidetracked. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's an actress who, um, uh, you know, I think I had a spell of her in the '80s and into the '90s that was really solid for me. You know, The Fly, Beetlejuice, Thelma and Louise, League of Their Own, and uh, even going back to uh, like. Tootsie and Fletch, you know, she was, you know, very small parts in, uh, in those. I just, I don't know. I just always have kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of a soft spot for her, I guess, even if she's not in much that's, uh, uh, that great these days, I guess. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I haven't, I, I never saw her TV show, which was supposedly pretty good, but. She had, what, was that, uh, Sarah? Com- Commander in Chief. Or, oh, Commander in Chief. That's yeah, recent. She, That's yeah, the recent yeah, one. Right, exactly. And then there's she the was... Gina Davis show. Yeah, which is one I never saw. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so she's, you know, she's there. I, she's, I, I she's, I, I liked her in this. <laughs> I, I think overall, I, you know, I, I have trouble with her, but in this, uh, you know, it, it works. Uh, it, it works. The team, I think, works uh, in this film overall, and and um, you know, particularly, I I loved the relationship between the sisters on the team. Lori Petty um, the, is actually one of the central problems I have with the fictionalization of this team, and uh, part of that is because while I like the rivalry between the sisters, she comes off as such a baby. Yeah. Throughout, like so impetuous and uh, petulant, uh, that I I find at the end of the film the great, huge climax at the end of the film when she actually hits the home run and is carried off the field. I I can't help but thinking she totally didn't deserve that. <laughs> like she was a huge baby, and everybody tried to bend their will around you know so that she could get her way and you know one of the best sequences is when Gina Davis confronts her and says i'm sick and tired of you mm-hmm. know getting blamed for things that are going wrong for you and uh and then she wins i'm like oh that's horrible way to end this film like she <laughs> she she should be on the bench she should not be you know anyway i think that was something where uh, I, I mean, I'm not quite sure, but I think that was a moment where they were trying to be a little more historically accurate as far as which team ended up winning the uh, World Series. Yeah, and and maybe and so that's what I when I mentioned that I have trouble with some of the performances, and usually I quite like Lori Petty. I mean, I I, I think she's a, a interesting and and charming actress. I don't think I've seen her in much else. She was in. Um, Oh, Free Willy. That's that was your. That favorite, was not right? the one I was. That was not actually Tank, the one Tank I was Girl? thinking. It was Tank Girl. I actually really liked Tank Girl when it came out. Um, and so, um, you know, I I've liked Lori Petty. I don't think that 
Uh, this film does, you know, much justice to her playing, you know. It's okay to be uh, upset and insulted about treatment on a sports team. I get it. But she came off as such a such a child. And maybe it was just she looked too old to be the child that she was playing. I don't know. I don't know, but but you're right. She's she's one of the the characters I've always kind of had a hard time with. Uh, there is something about the the ultra juvenileness that always comes across as is she just playing it like she's supposed to be 17 or is that just how she decided to play the character i don't know but it it does drive me a little crazy right out of the gate it does and and to that point i think when i have problems with performances it is because of that it's the same thing that applies to tom hanks same thing that applies um you know uh, across the board to performances i have trouble with it's because they're playing it like they like they think they should and not you know it, it doesn't feel terribly authentic well, and to that point, you know, this is something I, you know, going back to what I said earlier, there's something about the screenplay for this that I do find so much more simple. We always talk about this yeah. in, in my screenwriting class, and, and we usually try to get uh, the writers to write much more basic scripts kind of like this um, while they're learning rather than write what we call a ninja level writing script, who is something like Tarantino does. This is, it, it is a great example of just very basic screenwriting skills. And just the way that uh, Lowell and Babalu uh, do the setups and payoffs all through the film, um, I, I find just so obvious and straightforward. They, they always seem to be looking for um, the easy laugh, the easy dramatic moment. Like, the, they, like okay, the big joke about um, Marla Hooch and the way she looks, you know, right out of the gate, how she comes up and she's got the big doe-eye look. Yeah. Um, things, just simple things like the reflection of the flag on the side of the train. Um, and then there's all the little, and I, I'm one to say, I love the way that they actually do make it feel like I get to know, I swear, the entire team watching this film, I swear I could pinpoint any player because they're all given a moment, you know, but because of that, it does feel very, um, uh, you know, very written. Like you've got, okay, there's the one who's the illiterate. So we, we have that little moment. There's the uh, Madonna where, you know, she's, she has her little breakdown moment about, I never want to go back to that life, Mr. Mr. Candy bar man, yeah. whatever, you know, she's got that little moment. Um, you've got um, the, even, even going to like the, the, the African-American player or the woman who throws the ball and you've got that just one moment to give us that, Oh, okay. They can play too, but they're not allowed. Uh, sort of sense you know you've got all these different little things like the uh, the um just uh, the simplicity of the way that they do these setups and payoffs throughout the film it works very well in the context of the film but i i feel that some of the actors um are kind of pull it off in their performances better than others and i think for some it's just they don't sell it as well when it's when it's coming through in, in written in such a simplistic way yes yeah i i think that's uh i i think that's the that that's certainly the aesthetic i get you know it's it's uh it, it is uh it, it's almost snapped together yeah right uh, bit by bit snapped together and and uh it, yeah that's a good way to describe it yeah it feels it it feels very modular um, and yet, you know, like you say, when some characters that, that pull it off better than others, I, you know, if there is somebody who just, you know, really nails the character that she was meant to play in this film, I think it's Rosie O'Donnell. I mean, she, <laughs> you know, that loud mouth, uh, you know, brash, uh, character that is always screaming, 
<laughs> and and yet doesn't come off as play. It just comes off as who she is. And right. and I think in large part because that's who she is. Like, <laughs> but right, right. but there's a lot to appreciate about her place. And I think as a result, in terms of this, you know, what what Lola and Babalu are trying to do to make this very much a team dominated sort of a, a film, uh, she becomes one of the anchor points of 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 the team that is you know so visible so boisterous that it's it's uh you always can come back to her right um and and in the context of what this film is trying to do and the context of its comedy i think she works very well yeah she's great and interestingly that she came into audition for the role of marla hooch and um but i i guess penny just kind of you know really liked her and was like gosh i, I don't think that uh, you know i think I don't want to cast you as Marla. Uh, I want to cast you as as uh, Madonna's friend, um, which that role was actually written as another kind of a beauty queen, sort of like Madonna. But um, Penny thought it might work better to have a, somebody who's just kind of a little more tough and not quite the beauty queen playing with Madonna, where they both at least have the same personality. And she thought that she and Madonna would would kind of their personalities would mesh, which they did perfectly. I mean, they come across like their best friends. And I believe that this film actually created a friendship for the two of them that lasted for quite a while. I don't know if they're, uh, you know, still are, but I believe that they were friends for quite a while after this. Yeah, that was, I I remember a lot of, uh, you know, Rosie and Madonna news. Right, exactly. In in my years of reading the tabs. (laughs) Ah, yes. Uh, Those were the years. We all had those years, don't don't Uh, pretend uh, to. (laughs) ignore it so um yeah so i you know i that friendship i mean you talk about their friendship on this um in this film i think it works very well and and um you know it is you know the dance sequence in particular i think is is you know charming and funny and it gives madonna a chance to showboat and uh well uh, yeah and it, it is a showboat but they actually cast her only because they knew that there was a dance scene and they needed somebody who could dance yeah yeah uh, and so she's, uh, you know, I think she pulls it off and uh, she, you know, she looks great. And it, it's sort of the Madonna that, you know, I, I remember from my youth. <laughs> so, uh, yes. yes. Uh, you know, she, she, she's a very charming addition to the, to the cast, I think. I've always loved Madonna and, you know, she's somebody who I think sometimes her persona gets ahead of her in, in films. I think for the most part in this film, she does a great job of maintaining uh, a presence as just another player. You know, she doesn't come across as I want to make sure that I'm the center of attention. And yeah. I mean, there, there's a time or two, but it's not too bad. I think that they really, she really kind of was good just being one of the players. No, I, I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally agree with that. Um, she, yeah, she was great. She's, uh, what was she, she, this was a time when she was doing more movies. Well, I mean, she had just actually, um, Truth or Dare was actually, I think had just come out, which isn't like a movie movie. It was definitely more of her, uh, just her, her concert film, but uh, it was getting, a, it was out and I think it was, it had just opened at con when she was working on this, but uh, um, yeah, she had done, I can't remember if this was uh, right in the middle of the spell of her films or. Yeah, because she had done like Desperately Seeking Susan and uh, she did Dick Tracy Um she did uh, she did Evita that was after this I guess uh, uh, and so like there was this there was much more of a sense of of her as an actress through the late 80s and 90s um, and you know since then there, there just hasn't she's she's you know clearly done some other things 
Um, yeah, she really hasn't done much since. Uh, I mean, the last thing I remember was, uh, you know, she had done those. It's kind of like, uh, aside from her uh, James Bond uh, appearance in yeah, Die Another Day, Day, she had done those two horrible, horrible films in the early 2000s, The Next Best Thing and Swept Away. And I think after that, I think she's kind of yeah. disappeared for the most part. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it's interesting to kind of watch her career trajectory. I mean, those were the, the movies that, that, you know, you look at Desperately Seeking Susan and, and um, Dick Tracy. I mean, those were, uh, she was part of the draw. Like her, yeah. her, her career was at a, was at a, uh, a high. Yeah, it was. And then, I mean, she even did a, a Woody Allen film right before this, Shadows oh, and Fog. Was, uh, Shadows and Fog, right. Yeah, so <laughs> a very strange little... Uh, a turn there. Who's that girl? Shanghai Surprise. Uh huh. Oh, Madonna. Those were the days. Those <laughs> were the days. Okay. Uh, who else uh, do you want to talk about? Well, you know, I think there's a um, uh, just rat. I'm just going to rattle off the list of players on the Rockford Peaches because I think they they all have their great stuff. Uh, Gina right. Davis, Laurie Petty, Anne Ramsey, Megan Cavanaugh uh, as Marla. Rosie O'Donnell, Freddie Simpson, Tracy Reiner, who I mentioned last time, weirdly had been in a lot of Tom Hanks movies. Right. And I did some research, and it's like, big duh, she's the daughter of Penny Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that makes a little more sense now. And, uh, you know, she, she took, she's from her first husband, I believe, and but she took the last name of uh, Penny's second husband, Rob Reiner. So clearly she was kind of in the circles that Tom Hanks was in, which is why she popped up in a lot of stuff. Uh, Madonna, Biddy Schramm, who I think she's one of my favorite parts of the movie. One, because of the, there's no crying in baseball scene. And also because her son, uh, uh, who is just, I think one of those parts that I never fully understand, like uh, it's just such a strange addition to it, but it plays for comedy so well. And it's got, a great, you know, set of setups as to how annoying her son is and the great payoff of Tom Hanks throwing the mitt and hitting him in the face, which is still so excited about it. Like, I got him. <laughs> you know. That, that uh, Stillwell, uh, what, what do they call him, Angel? Stillwell, Stillwell Angel, Stillwell, yeah. Stillwell Angel, played by Justin Scheller, the young uh, Justin Scheller, who, uh, I, you're right, I mean, he is, <laughs> he is, you, you really do join in the hate. Yes, uh, you absolutely do. I, absolutely when do. Madonna picks up a bat and says, excuse me, Evelyn, honey, I've got to kill your son. <laughs> I mean, he, he's, he, he is played for laughs. He's clearly yes. written for laughs and played for laughs, and it, it comes across perfectly, I think. Absolutely. So that's Biddy Schramm and her son, Renee Coleman, and Cusack, one of the Cusack siblings. She plays Shirley Baker, the illiterate, um, who Madonna teaches to read through uh, little... Uh, <laughs> Uh, romance novels, um, Robin Knight, Patty Pelton, Kelly Simpkins, and Connie Pounds. So uh, a lot of great players on the team. I think they all do a great job. And then um, I think the other ones, I mean, uh, another player that is on the other team, which I had forgotten is Taylor Leone, actually yes. pops up on the other side. I was like, oh, yeah, this is kind of where she, uh, I don't know if this is where she kind of got her start, but certainly uh, one of her early films. Absolutely. And we've already talked about John Lovitz, but David Strathairn's fantastic. Gary Marshall. And, and David Strathairn coming off of uh, Eight Men Out. I don't yes. think he had done too far before. So clearly somebody who's in the baseball circles and right. definitely somebody who, uh, you know, he's just, man, I swear, he, you put him in a movie and it just instantly goes up a notch. Oh, seriously. Yeah. 
He's in one of my guilty pleasures. Oh, <laughs> uh, good. And Gary Marshall, uh, yeah. Penny's brother, who came in after somebody had dropped out. She just called him, and he came in to play this great part of Walter Harvey, uh, the candy bar mogul. And another guy who Tom Hanks has worked with uh, periodically. Gary nothing Marshall. In, nothing in common. It, pretty much anything you put the word mogul after it, Gary Marshall could be that guy. Candy bar <laughs> mogul, glue mogul. Yeah, He could be uh, any mogul. That'd be Gary Marshall. Yes, he could. He, he absolutely fantastic. could. He's, he's, gosh, you know, unfortunately, he's turned into the guy who just directs uh, kind of just some of those just schmaltzy, uh, you know, multi, I know, multi uh, uh, story films like Valentine's Day and New Year's Eve. It's like, oh, I wish you're doing better things, Gary. I know. I know. It's, it's really frustrating. I, well, and, and just acting more. <laughs> he's yeah. so funny. He's he, just he is. a funny guy. He really um, is. He's got a great presence. Great presence. He certainly does. Certainly does. Yeah. Um, uh, other extras. Uh, uh, let's see. Julie Crotu, uh, Lynn Cartwright, Bill Pullman, briefly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A nice little uh, appearance in this right before he popped up as uh, Tom Hanks's rival in a second film, Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle. That's right. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Janet Jones, Don Davis, Eddie Jones, um, uh, Mark I, Holton as the elder Stillwell. I love Eddie Jones. Uh, he plays Marla's dad. Yes. And uh, um, he's just one of those faces that pops up in films that I just always love seeing Eddie Jones. Uh, you know, he never seems to be in huge parts that that I recall. Um, but things like Seabiscuit, where he's the owner of the other horse. I mean, these little parts that just, uh, I don't know, I just always enjoy seeing him. Absolutely. Uh, another one, Alan Wilder is another one of those guys. Um, uh, mm-hmm. He plays Nelson, Marla's um, husband, right? Uh, and he's he's in the in the the, the late eighties to nineties. He's in a bunch of stuff, particularly a lot of television, uh, where he's where he just shows up. And it seems like all the shows I used to watch: Murphy Brown, Frasier, Party of Five, Mad About You. Like he he was he was showing up everywhere. Um, so. Yeah, I think um, you know. S- switching gears to the uh, the production of this, um, you know, it's funny. Uh, Miroslav Ondracek did the cinematography. I don't know uh, Miroslav that well, but he seems to be um, somebody who's done some some good things, like Amadeus, and then some, you know, kind of more of the comedic things, like Funny Farm and uh, FX that uh, that didn't uh, work quite as well. Um, he, his, he's, I don't know. I, I think he's a cinematographer who, um, works. I think he does a great job, especially with the director like Penny Marshall, who notoriously, uh, really kind of comes at this from the acting point of view where doesn't really know anything at all about lenses or anything. I mean, you hear her talking about it and she's just like, well, you know, I hate the shots where you've got some of the stuff in the backgrounds a little fuzzy. I just kind of want to make it all look the same. You know, when she says things like that, it's like, okay, so she clearly isn't going to be the one to go to, to to figure out which lens to put on the camera, like some other directors who go, oh, yeah, give me give me the 75. And, right. You know, <laughs> so right. She's, she very much uh, just is, uh, I think, a very um, actor-oriented director, which is fine. She lets her cinematographer. <laughs> it's a little fuzzy. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. So, but he does a great job. Um, you know, he did. But, he did some films that I, I really, uh, you know, uh, Silkwood, World According to Garp, Ragtime. I mean, the 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 eighties for him was, uh, you know, he did some some good films. 
Yeah, I think leading up to Amadeus, I think yeah. he's doing some great stuff. And then I think he kind of turned and stopped doing stuff that was as great, maybe. <laughs> but <laughs> you weren't you weren't a big uh, a big fan of Valmont, you Milos, know Milos Forman. I, I never saw Valmont, but I I did quite enjoy the um, Dangerous Liaisons, the other version of yeah. that story. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's, you know, this, like you say, however, this film, when you look at it in, in terms of production, it it kind of takes the same tone as the script. It is, it's modular, like it's it's very clean. Uh, there's nothing particularly, um, you know, outlandishly innovative. There's He's not doing anything that would detract from the general tone of the film. No, no. but it's funny, uh, you know, Penny talks about the cinematographer and how he, um, along with Hans Zimmer, who wrote the music, they both came from Europe and have no idea about baseball. <laughs> they walked into this. And so the cinematographer told her one time, he's like, you know, she when she slides into base, the, the lighting just doesn't look right. Let's just reframe the shot and we'll have her sliding over into the first base. And Penny's just like, it doesn't work that way. You can't have him sliding into first base because he... The whole thing is sliding into home, and it needs to look like it's, it's home base. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah, it doesn't. That's not how baseball works. You don't get to pick the base that you're sliding into. You know what? Into. I think the ball is a little small. Maybe we can find something bigger, like a cantaloupe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's uh, funny. Um, the music. Can we talk about the music? Yeah, yeah. What's your thought of the music? Well. Uh, the Hans Zimmer score is it doesn't. I, I mean, it's not it's not music that I that's particularly memorable. But what is in just horribly distracting is the soundtrack. Yeah, which is terrible. Which is terrible, and I have to imagine it was terrible in 1992. It's terrible. Yeah, it's it's stuff that they. Um, I don't know. I think that they. This was kind of at that weird time where they. Uh, were finding people to just do songs who weren't necessarily uh, big names, or they were big names in a, in a way that, you know, people involved in the film thought they were big names, but maybe it was because they were big names like five or ten years before. <laughs> oh. They just don't seem to fit, and it is it is a tough one. I actually like Hans Zimmer's score, even if I do find it a bit repetitive. Um, like, you feel like that that music that plays during the big climax, I feel like we already heard it two or three times before. Yeah. Um, but I still, I, I find it effective, but yeah, the, the rest of the stuff in this, in the music is just, uh, it's kind of painful to listen to. There, and I'm there glad... are some classics, some, you know, Rogers and Hart and, and oh, sure. uh, you know, there are some classics in the, in the kind of back in the day, uh, that are, that are fine, you know, standards are fine, but you know, I'm, wow, Carol King. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That opening song is just terrible. Yeah, and in I... the Madonna, we got a good... <laughs> I'm sitting there with my wife and getting a good laugh at this at this Madonna tune that we really had never heard. And given where she was in her career, that this song didn't become the standout song. This used to be my playground is uh, really funny to me that it was not it was not good. It's it's one of the um, slowest songs that Madonna has done, and I swear. It drones on forever. Like nothing that I've ever. It heard makes before. baseball, which is already kind of a slow sport, now played by seventy to eighty year old women. Uh, in the that's what we're watching in these closing credits. It makes it seem interminable, 
Like there are too many people in this film to run credits because it just goes forever and ever and ever. Yeah, it actually did um, top the charts and it became Madonna's 10th number one single, uh, which broke her tie with Whitney Houston to become the female artist with the most number one singles at the time. All right, now you're so, making me look bad. It's not a good song. <laughs> I know it's not a good song. Trust me, I am. I, I just am surprised that it actually topped the charts and did, did as well Did you remember as it? it? Because, I mean, am I alone Oh, there? I totally remember it. I you totally do? remember it. I've always remembered. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen this movie a million times. Okay. And I always, as soon as that song starts, I just, I'm like, oh, God, I have to turn the sound off because it's, it's horrible. It is horrible. I, I, you know, and I have it on uh, one of Madonna's, she did a compilation of some of her ballads um, in the mid-90s, and I have that. And it's the one that I always skip because I feel like it never ends. Yeah. Well, it's because yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> it it doesn't. is the song that never ends. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh Okay. All right. Well, so uh, where do we stand? Do you have other things to talk about on this thing, or are we ready to uh, talk? Just one other thing that I I do want to bring up, which I do find really interesting um, in regards to Gina Davis, actually. Um, She has uh, become kind of a a pillar for uh, fighting the good fight of gender in media. And I think that this film, I don't know if this film kind of started for her or what, but... um, because I, I think it became obvious to her that there were not a lot of um, women in roles that, that they could look at as uh, role models. And so she started up this institute called the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media. And it's basically a nonprofit that's trying to get the media industry to to kind of get a better balance in the world of uh, gender. And, you know, just a few interesting statistics that uh, that she threw out there that, you know, this little flyer that came with the the Blu-ray. And I just it really kind of surprised me in, in a kind of a shocking way. But these are just some stats about gender in media that I thought I'd throw out there. Among the top-grossing G-rated films, female characters are outnumbered by boys three to one. This ratio has existed since 1946. Wow. Yeah, that's one. Female characters are six times as likely to be shown in sexually revealing clothing. Consider this. G-rated animated female characters wear the same percentage of sexually revealing clothing as live-action R-rated characters. (laughs) You're (laughs) kidding me. (laughs) All I have to say is... Little Mermaid? Uh, Yeah, right. (laughs) And then from 2006 to 2009, not one female character was depicted in G-rated family films working in the field of medical science as a business leader or in law or politics. So, you know, it just, it is uh, something that I think people in the industry, it's worth being aware of the fact that, you know, we need to make, I mean, we're both fathers of daughters and making it more, um, uh, making more options for them where they can find uh, of more role models, I think, is very important. I mean, even look at the Lego movie, which I think people keep pointing out in the world of Legos, how um, I think it was not until like in the last decade where all of a sudden they finally had a female character as far as the Lego toys. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it is it is something that they're working on changing. And obviously they had Wild Style as a character in the film. And, uh, you know, they're trying to get more um, female Legos out there, aside from the kind of, 
overly cliche girl Legos that are all like pinks and purples with, you know, let's, you know, we're playing in, in our, on our swing set and just all sorts of things that are not like the, what the boy toys are doing, you know? So, you know, they're working on it, but it is, I think it's something to be aware of. And I'm glad uh, to hear that Gina Davis has this whole institute, this nonprofit that she's putting together to try to get uh, people more involved and try to make better, um, uh, better role models for young women. Oh, that's great. Yeah, well, that's so great. And and to your point, I mean, that's as a as a father of a daughter, uh, and you know, maybe I'm lucky. All my my daughter is is vastly uh, more interested in you know bows and arrows and things that are you know she's she's definitely um, she is training for the Hunger Games. She's training for the Hunger Games, right? And so, like, training to win is the, <laughs> is what. I, <laughs> I like to put that, uh, and she really has never resonated with the things that are um, specifically targeted for girls, and tends to really, you know, the movies that she likes. She gets, she finds, she. I find her getting more frustrated when there are things that are really uh, observ- observably girly, like targeted to a specific, you know, like pinks and purples and and kind of princessy things so yeah i think i get lucky on that on that front but um you know to your point we need more options that that give more that show more strength and and you know a little bit more realistic portrayal of of the breadth um of interests yeah for girls absolutely that they can be the same Mm -hmm. so yeah exactly all right so how'd this movie do in the box office? You know, it did well. You know, I think uh, they they decided that the the tone, uh, you know, they I think they picked well as far as finding the right tone for the film because it's definitely something that was an audience pleaser. I mean, it's it's number thirty two on our list of films um, when you look at it according to adjusted for inflation uh, in cost per finished minute. But the budget on it was $40 million. So they had, you know, a decent amount of money for early 90s to to play around with. And it dom- domestically, it grossed uh, just over $107 million. And internationally, about almost $25 million. So all told, when you uh, adjust for inflation, looking at um, profit per finished minute of $1.2 million dollars, that they made. So it did really well. Well, I, good, good for yeah. them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, 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 uh, it's uh, like we said, it's a, it's, it's a significant movie. I got nothing it, else to say. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's not a film I'm quite ready to show my daughter because it does have some stuff that is a little more PG rated. Some yeah. of the, some of the lines, but I am very much looking forward to sitting down and showing this to her because I think that it's just a strong film for for her to see, just to see what what women can do. Yeah, and you know that was my, the, we ended the film last night. My daughter looks up. She says that was a great movie. Yeah, right. Awesome. You know, it's it is. It's great. It's a great movie that wasn't Frozen. Yeah, which is you know low hanging fruit <laughs> around here. Uh, yes, yes. So. All right, uh, let's uh, rank it. Let's do it. All right, so ready? Where are we? Where do they find us? Well, you go over to flickchart.com is where you go, and you uh, you look for uh, the next reel. Flickchart.com slash the next reel, and you join us over there, and you check out our list of stack ranked movies, all the movies that we have done on this show. Uh, you'll find them there, and you'll we'll see uh, we'll see if a league of their own 
cracks the golden top 100. Let's see. All right. We've got A League of Their Own or Sunshine. Well. That's I, an interesting I, one. It is a, it's a tough one. I would, I would say Sunshine um, because that's the movie I would put on first. Yeah, I, I, it's interesting. I feel they both have their own problems. You know, yeah. A League of Their Own has, uh, we already talked about kind of the, the problems with its screenplay. Sunshine definitely has some problems in the third act with its screenplay. But that yeah. being said. Yeah, and, and on that front, I think I disagree with you on that. I, you know, I mean, we've, we've t- talked about that show. I think I, I find less trouble with Sunshine than you do. But, but in that point, you know, I have trouble with it because um, I feel like as soon as I say Sunshine, uh, I, 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 my gut says that uh, League of Their Own probably deserves to be higher than that. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm a little torn on this one. I, I, I feel like I'm going to go League of Their Own, but I feel like I could go Sunshine too. Well, I don't have a really good case to make uh, for Sunshine, apart from I, I just enjoy the, generally enjoy the film more. I think on that front alone, I need to say Sunshine. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I mean, Sunshine for me, I, I think it's less the problem in the third act with the story, and it's more just how uh, Danny Boyle chose to shoot it that really distracts me. Every time the the antagonist comes on screen it's just like those blurry shaky yeah. shots of him like why couldn't you just show him <laughs> making it so annoying yeah okay know. i get your point but I, I i think i'm given knowing that i'm even more inclined to say sunshine all right well i'll say sunshine all right i, I know where this next one is going a league of their own or pete's all-time favorite yee yee a one and a two <laughs> a league of their own <laughs> i'll say a league of their own a league of their own or ronin ronin I will say Ronin, but uh, I do like A League of Their Own, too. A League of Their Own, or It Happened One Night. Huh. I I would say A League of Their Own, uh, but I think it's just because, you know, I, I, you know, as sad as it is to say, I still am more inclined to put on a more recent film than than It Happened One Night. Yeah, I, I'll say A League of Their Own. Um, A League of Their Own, or Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy. Um... I will agree with you. I will agree with you. <laughs> it doesn't have the laughs. It doesn't have no crying in baseball, but... But talk about resonance. I, I know, I know. It, it does it, have Morgan Freeman. It, 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 it's a slow film, but uh, there's a lot of power in it. A League of Their Own or Alien 3? <laughs> I'll go A League of Their Own. I mean, I do like... I, I do like Alien 3, despite its problems, but I'm still going to go League of Their Own. If it was the first two Alien films, I would pick them. Alien 3, man, this is tough. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I'm torn, and I know, I, I know there, are, there are so many people out there who don't like Alien 3 as much, but I, you know, for David Fincher uh, alone, I think, gosh... I know, but it is a bit of a mess. If 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 uh, he had been given more free reign, I you know I don't know. I feel like it could have been a better film. I feel like that I sort of, the I, yeah, it, extended cut helps, but I still feel like you know okay, I can see the greatness in there. It's just there's a lot of things that's that. Uh, um, you know what it is. I, I'm I have to say, what would David want me to pick? And I <laughs> I honestly think David would want me to pick a League of Their Own. Oh well, there you go. He probably would. <laughs> 
A League of Their Own or Midnight Run? A League of Their Own. Yeah, I would do A League of Their Own. And, uh, all right, there we are. Number 82. 82. Out of, out of 124. <laughs> That's all right. That's yeah, good. Yeah, I think it is. That's good. I can I can live with that. It's in the top 100, and, uh, you know, it's got great stuff going on, and uh, it's definitely a film worth checking out. So this wraps up our Tom Hanks, right? Yeah, it wraps up our Tom Hanks series. You know, we didn't do any of the... Uh, we did Apollo 13, but there are, you know, we I think we probably have to do more Tom Hanks. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your... Do you have any sort of sense of kind of overall impression given the movies that we have watched? I know your your love for Tom Hanks burns ever so brightly, but um, uh, do you, what is your or your sense of the review of these films? Well, you know, this I think was a... Um, just kind of a great... Uh, look at Tom, his the start of his career into his, uh, you know, his award-winning days and really kind of finding his uh, footing as far as the direction he was really going to take. I think that um, the four movies that we looked at gave us a great sense of not just the um, the great comedic sense that he has and the way that he can really latch on to the comedy in any particular situation, um, but it really gave us a good sense as to finding his footing with uh, with bigger stories and being able to kind of break out of just the the, the easy comedy that he could find in Splash and all the way through League of Their Own, but into stuff like Forrest Gump and Apollo 13 and how he was able to kind of take the persona that he had in the in the Hollywood system and really transition into a leading actor who could carry a film. And not just to to making a lot of money, but to uh, something that really uh, tapped into people's hearts and uh, and uh, their pocketbooks and uh, the awards. I mean, I think he really this was a great look at him finding his footing and and becoming the big, no pun intended, Tom Hanks that we all know and love. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that is almost spot on to my assessment of it too. And I, I, when I think about the recent Tom Hanks movies, even movies that I found kind of messy, like Cloud Atlas, um, you know, I the the Tom Hanks in Captain Phillips uh, is the Tom Hanks that I that, that I think he was meant to be. Uh, yeah. And and uh, you know, I, I I think you can see here uh, these films as almost a practice run. Uh, at at the films that um, that I think have have really come to define who he is, uh, you know, Catch Me If You Can, and you know, I I'm I, you know, Charlie Wilson's War, and you know, the films that I I really like, and and um, so I'm I he's it's really fun to um, to go back and and look at some of these older films, and I look forward to doing this uh, doing this again. Oh, The Green Mile, yeah. Yeah, a lot of lot of movies to talk about. A lot of movies to talk about, but this was this was fun going back in time. And uh, where do we go from here? Well, uh, continuing our Apollo eighteen uh, conversation <laughs> <laughs> last week, we are going to be uh, jumping into a little found footage series, which I am quite looking forward to. I uh, definitely love found footage films, and I think we have a, a great little selection of them. We're going to do Quarantine, Cloverfield, Chronicle, and Troll Hunter. So really, we couldn't find another K? <laughs> we couldn't. I, I, I looked. I looked. Yeah. <laughs> <Cloverfield Chronicle laughs> and Kroll Hunter. 
<laughs> crawl hunter. <laughs> oh, this will be good. A little nice little uh, four week jaunt into found footage uh, horror thriller. Yes, looking forward to I it. I love it. I love it. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> that's all I have to say about. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to bed. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.